Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Bill Federer is back to continue his look at the real history of socialism, and James Collins has a moment of prophecy. We recently shared the good news of Southwest Radio Ministries and Prophecy in the News, joining in a special gospel partnership that includes bringing back the Prophecy in the News magazine. Well, the very first issue is out right now. Subscribe to the Prophecy in the News magazine today. With your subscription, you get a print and digital version and access to our online streaming platform, FaithNet TV. Call today and subscribe to the Prophecy in the News magazine, 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or go to our website, swrc.com. Now, here is Pastor Larry and Bill Federer to continue their look at the real history of socialism. Our friend Bill Federer is back for another show on a socialism book. The title of the book, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present, How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. Thank you so much, Bill, for being back with us for another show. Hey, great to be with you. In the previous show, we were you were talking, actually, very effectively about molding of the public mind. There are several other examples that you mentioned, so let's pick up where we left off. We see that the current administration is wanting to have a disinformation board <laughs> and wanting to control the information that's out there. This is dangerous, and George Orwell wrote about this in his book, 1984. It's called doublespeak, where everything the government says is actually the opposite of what is really happening. And so in the book, 1984, George Orwell has a character named Winston who's working for the Ministry of Truth, but all it does is lie. And Mm -hmm. so he sits at his desk and down a pneumatic tube, you know, when you go to the bank, put your deposit in that tube and it sucks it up. And so that was a new invention in 1948. So he's at his desk and down the tube comes the history that needs to be edited. And he cuts out the old history and puts it in another pneumatic tube and sends it down into the basement incinerator where it's destroyed, and it's called down the memory hole. And so he says every record has been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten, every picture has been repainted, every statue and street building has been renamed, every date altered. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. I know, of course, that the past is falsified. But it would never be possible for me to prove it. Even when I did the falsification myself, after the thing is done, no evidence remains. Mm. The only evidence is inside my own mind, and I don't know that any other human being shares my memories. Everything faded into mist. The past was erased. The erasure was forgotten. The lie became truth. And so this is 1984, him talking about the government having a disinformation governance board. Mm. Rand Paul was speaking before the committee when they were discussing disinformation. And so Rand Paul is drilling the Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. And Rand Paul says, I think you've got no idea what disinformation is. Do you know who the greatest propagator of disinformation in the history of the world is? The U.S. government. (laughs) Rand Paul goes, are you familiar with McNamara, the Pentagon Papers? Are you familiar with George W. Bush and the weapons of mass destruction? Are you familiar with Iran-Contra? I don't want the government guardrails. 
I want you to have nothing to do with speech. Do you think the American people are so stupid they need you to tell them what truth is? <laughs> I don't trust the government to figure out what truth is. Government is largely disseminating disinformation. Wow. So that was Rand Paul and May 4th, 2022. But this idea of controlling information, human beings are social creatures. We like to fit in with groups, and we hate being kicked out of groups. Yes. In most of the world, this is called honor-shame culture. In Asia, it's really big, even in Islam that the Ummah, the community, if they accept you and honor you, your worth goes up. If your daughter embarrasses you in front of the group, they'll even murder their own daughter because of the shame in front of the group. And so acceptance rejection is a human phenomenon, and they want to manipulate that. Mm. And so an individual water molecule, but you put it with others, and it operates in a group and has powerful waves in the ocean. An individual fish, but you put it with other fish, and it operates in a group. They can turn on a dime. An individual bird in a cage, but you put it with other birds, they operate in a group and can fly in these pretty patterns. Well, humans, we're individuals, but you put us together with other humans, and we're always wanting to give and receive feedback right. as to whether we're being accepted or rejected. And so nobody wants to be rejected, and they want to manipulate that. So Saul Linsky says ridicule, this fear of rejection, mm. is the most potent weapon. And then this was studied after the Korean War. They would do something called brainwashing that came from the Buddhist concept of cleansing the mind, this blanking out of this an emotional reset. And so they would take these captured soldiers and isolate them and put them through deprivation for months until they got to the breaking point of craving wanting to get back to normal, craving to wanting to have relationships. And they would pull them into a room with a bunch of guys who had already caved. And before they could be accepted in this group, they had to confess their whiteness. They had to confess that they were part of the evil Western capitalist system that was doing all these terrible things. And once they rejected America, then they got the buddy treatment. They were slapped on the back, and they were accepted into the group. And this manipulation, could you imagine of putting a whole country through a period of isolation and deprivation mm. and lockdown and so much that people craved wanting to get back to normal? Right. And then they say, okay, before you can get back to normal, you've got to give up this freedom. You've got to take this shot. You've got to wear this thing on your face. You've got to do this, that, and the other. And so it's a, a manipulating mm. of the human desire to want to fit in. And it's very powerful. Stories like you're telling us are very powerful. They're very potent because they remind us. I mean, you know, it's kind of like having a good sermon, but if you don't have illustrations, it'll flop. So you're giving us the windows and the pictures. Right. So we have fear motivates people, but we also have this idea of wanting to fit in with the group. And this was implemented by Joseph Goebbels. Mm. He was the Nazi minister of propaganda. And so he would orchestrate these Coliseum events with a hundred thousand people and they would begin to give the Hitler salute in the front and it would work its way back like a wave at a football game mm. and everybody would see everybody else giving the Hitler salute and they would feel pressured to give it and then people would see you giving it and they would feel pressured and it was this manipulate how you get an entire nation to buy into a lie this fear-mongering and so the idea is that you manipulate this human desire to fit in with the group to give you an example of how powerful this is, was the ash conformity experiment done in the 1960s on college campuses where they would pull eight students into a classroom and all of them were paid actors except one. One was a naive participant. And the teacher would put two cards on the front desk. One card simply had one line on it and the other three lines, one longer, one shorter, one the same. 
And beginning with the paid actors, one by one they would go around the room and claim that the shorter line was equal to that card with the first line. And by the time it got around to the eighth naive participant, 30% of them would deny their own eyes to fit right, in with the group. Right. I mean, they're looking at the lines. They can see the lines <laughs> are different, but they're dot their perception. They wonder, they must see something that I don't, and they would cave. And so this power of fitting in was studied again. It's called the spiral of silence, that people will self-censor their views if they think they are in the minority. Mm. And Chuck Colson talked about a experiment where they had a wine tasting, and all the couples were in on it except one. And they poured vinegar in the wine. And this couple said, this tastes terrible. So they write that on their little card. But one by one, the other couples would stand up and say, this wine had character. It was great. And when it got around to the naive couple, they scratched out what they wrote. And they said, yeah, it, it tasted good. <laughs> and then when somebody said all they did was pour vinegar in, the couple that had changed their views criticized the person for saying they poured vinegar in. Mm. And this is a phenomenon called false enforcement. Once somebody buys into the lie, they will help enforce that other people buy into the lie. Wow. And so this is a manipulating of this mass consensus. They even took it another level. They needed an authority figure to set this. Instead of having an actress wearing shoes, they would get a scientist. And so this was called the Stanley Milgram study done at Yale and 1963, and they advertised in the paper for teachers and learners to do an education experiment, and all the learners were in on it. But the teachers would be put in one room, but they'd walk past another room where they'd see all these wires and electrical stuff, and they'd see the learner being wired up with all this shock stuff, and then they would go into their room where they had a microphone and a panel of switches, and the teacher was to ask the learner Questions And whenever the learner got it wrong, the teacher was supposed to flip a switch and give the learner a shock. Now, they weren't really being shocked, but the teacher didn't know that. And so as they get more questions wrong, the shock increased until the person in the other room is like screaming in pain. <laughs> and the person doing the shocking would feel bad and would turn to the person in the lab coat, the scientist, and they're like, are you sure I should continue? And the person says, it is science. You must continue. And then the person would scream louder. And he said, you want to go check on that person? Are you sure they're okay? And he says, this is science. You must continue. <laughs> and so finally, the person in the other room didn't make any noise. And he says, is he dead? Did I kill him? And he says, this is science. You must continue. And so they said, you know, were all the people in Germany evil when they participated no, they needed a science person saying, well, this is science. You must right. continue. They need like a Fauci character. And <laughs> they found out that 65% of people will violate their own conscience wow. and continue to administer lethal shocks if there's a person in a lab coat saying, this is science, it must wow. continue. But it's all this study. How do you manipulate an entire nation of people? And this is what we've been subject to. And that's why they want to control all the narrative with the Facebook and Twitter and so forth. But in closing on this particular thought, accepting or rejecting from a group is very powerful. Here's Peter. He was with Jesus for three years. Looks Jesus in the eye. Says, I will never deny you. A couple hours later, Peter is around a fire with a group of people. Mm -hmm. And a girl gets in his face, 
and says, you're with Jesus, and you can just picture Peter looking at every single person around the fire, and they are all staring at him. And his response is, I never met the guy. Hmm. That's it, Peter. (laughs) The power of being rejected from a group. Now, for his sake, after the resurrection, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he has a change. And the Sanhedrin said, we gave you strict orders not to speak in his name. And Peter replied, we must obey God rather than men. It's only when you have a relationship with God mm. can you not care about what men say about Amen. you. Amen. Wow. And there's Sam Coonrod, a Giants baseball pitcher. He's the only one not to kneel and protest to the flag. Right, and right. afterwards they said, why? He goes, I'm a Christian. I just believe I can't kneel before anything besides God. Mm-hmm. Wow. And Orlando Magic for Jonathan Isaac, lone player to stand when they're all kneeling in protest. And afterwards, they asked him why. He says, all lives are supported through the gospel. Everyone is made in the image of God, and we all share in his glory. It's only when you have a relationship with God can you have the backbone not to cave. And Amen. I believe God's letting the world get pushed to a decision-making point. Are we going to care what they post about you and like you and unfriend you and block you? Or are you going to care about, I'm going to stand up for truth. All I care about is standing before the Lord and him saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Right. Faith in Christ and all that that involves, being filled with the Holy Spirit, believing the Bible, living according to its commands and dictates, and avoiding what it tells us to avoid is dangerous to this left-wing, radical, woke group. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see more and more Christians coming under attack, because they know We have a higher standard, and whatever they do will not budge us. Now, you know, Bill, I've heard a lot about the disinformation board, and some people are saying, well, it's been defeated. No way. I think we've got to watch out. I think they're going to try to pull that again on us. I think it's too easy. The people are too gullible, too ready. I don't believe for one second that we won't be hearing about this disinformation board again. I think it's going to happen over and over. Yeah, remember when they told us that the intelligence gathering community, NSA, the Patriot Act, that they were only going to Mm. monitor foreigners. Right. And then it got to, well, anybody that has communication with a foreigner, we're going to monitor you too, until pretty soon it's monitoring everybody. And now they've taken it another step. They're calling it ESG, environmentally friendly, socially woke, and governance. (laughs) They're instituting it through banks, and they're having them monitor everything about you and collecting a score. And if you're not woke enough, they want to turn off your credit. And the other thing I bring out in my book, Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present, is intentional crises. Mm. And I go through history, I go through how Britain became the biggest empire on planet Earth. And the thought is, how did Britain get so big? Did they cause the people to surrender their freedoms? Let's look at how the British took over Bengal, India. Mm. They came in and opened a trading post that turned into a trading fort that turned into them giving guns to one kingdom and guns to another kingdom. And it ended up with this fighting where the British then had an excuse to come in and conquer both kingdoms. And they did this again and again until they took over all of India. They tried doing it to America during the Revolutionary War, where the British came down from Canada, General Burgoyne meets with the Mohawk Indians, promises them money for scalps, and they go out and they terrorize. They did it again during the War of 1812. The British controlled Pensacola, Florida, just north of Fort Mims, Alabama. British promised them money for scalps. They captured Fort Mims and then proceeded to scalp all 500 of the ones they captured. 
do we really think the British cared about these Indians? No, they were stirring it up because they wanted to conquer the whole thing. And so basically it got turned into politics where you go into a country, you find the different groups, you pit them against each other so that you can cause fighting. Right. Well, you have a section in your book, I'm looking at it right now, page 242, where you speak about manipulating voters. And you say, as more people exercise the right to vote, more tactics emerge to manipulate voters, including, and then you have a whole list of things. You say, prepared breaking news stories to grab the headlines and disrupt the momentum of a winning candidate. And then you go on and say race baiting, Black Panther, Black Lives Matter, Antifa-type violence or intimidation at polls, using community organizers, agitators, agent provocateurs, undercover FBI stings to incite riots, on and on and on. So what you have in your book here, we see in the headlines. And when, for example, the George Floyd riots and all that broke out from that, how it was manipulated and certainly was a terrible thing that was done by those police officers, but then those who are woke, those who hate America, those who hate Christian values, they picked it up and ran with it and were for a time very, very successful. Yeah, it's interesting. Even Abimelech is the illegitimate son of Gideon, Judges chapter 9. Israel's at peace. Gideon just defeated 100,000 Midianites, but he has an illegitimate son, Abimelech, who wants to seize power, and so he does critical race theory, identity race politics. He goes to the town of Shechem, and he says, Is it better for you that the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Mm. And the men of Shechem said, we got to vote for him because he is our brother. And so then he takes money from the city treasury and hires protesters and rioters, Antifa, BLM type. And they gave him three score and ten pieces of silver out of the house of Balbarith, where mm. Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons which followed him. And they went into his father's house at Oprah and slew his brethren. And the men of Shechem made a bit like king. So here we have a peaceful nation. This guy goes, does this race politics, and then takes money, hires rioters, and in the confusion he seizes power and makes himself a king. That was a century before King Saul, but somebody threw a millstone over the wall and it killed mm-hmm. a bit like. But this idea was talked about with Machiavelli 500 years ago. A bunch of city-states in Italy, always fighting. Machiavelli thinks if one prince can control them all, it'll stop the infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end, because it'll stop the infighting, that any means necessary to get there is justified. Light, heat, steel. So if a prince conquers a city, they'd hate him. But if the prince pays criminals to kill cows and burn barns and smash windows, the people will panic in fear. They'll want somebody to come along and restore order. The prince will come in and get rid of the very criminals he bribed to create the mess, nobody will know the better for it, and everyone will praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house, set it on fire, then you go around the front of the house, sell them a fire extinguisher. They'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. Well, friends, you really need this book, the title of the book, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present, How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. Bill, it's always a great blessing to have you on the show. You and Southwest Radio Church have been working together for many, many years. So once again, thank you so much. And you are a blessing to us, to our listeners, and indeed to the American Republic. Well, thank you, Larry. 
We appreciate Bill Federer, and we want to share his insights with you. The complete two-day conversation on the real history of socialism is available on CD. Order copies for you and your friends and family. Simply call 1-800-652-1144. We also have available Bill Federer's book, The Real History of Socialism, From Plato to the Present. Call 1-800-652-1144 and order The Real History of Socialism. Or order online, swrc.com. Now, with today's Moment of Prophecy, here is Staff Evangelist James Collins. Prophecy fills the Bible. Some say one-third of the Bible is prophecy. I see types and shadows throughout the entire Word of God, so I believe all the Bible is prophecy. End times prophecy touches every person alive today. Jesus taught on it, so did John, Paul, Peter, James, and Jude. However, only a small percentage of churches teach this crucial part of God's message to our generation. The most frequently asked question here at Southwest Radio Ministries is, Where can I find a church that teaches Bible prophecy? Sadly, we can't always answer that question because not very many pastors teach Bible prophecy today. Some pastors don't teach it for theological reasons. They don't believe it, don't think it applies to us, consider it symbolic or whatever. Others believe we're probably living near the end of the age but still refuse to touch the topic. They see it as an elective part of God's Word, take it or leave it. Now, that's not how Jesus saw it. He reprimanded the Pharisees and Sadducees for not discerning the times. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verses 2 and 3, When it is evening, ye say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? I think that many pastors refuse to teach Bible prophecy because they don't understand it, or because they fear offending members of their congregation, or because they think people will be scared, or because they believe people will not tithe or give if they think we're close to the end. I mean, if Jesus is coming soon, who's going to give money to your five-year building fund? I also think that one of the reasons that many pastors don't teach Bible prophecy has to do with some of the false teachers that are popular today. One of those teachers is Hank Hanegraaff. Hank Hanegraaff is the host of the Bible Answer Man program, and he's recently been attacking those who teach Bible prophecy. Mr. Hanegraaff is a preterist. He believes that all Bible prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. Several years ago, Hank Hanegraaff wrote a book called The Apocalypse Code. He wrote the book in response to Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' bestseller, Left Behind. The book asserts that there is no such thing as future Bible prophecy. Mr. Hanegraaff also attacks the rapture. Don't take my word for it. Listen to a clip between a caller and Hank Hanegraaff. What I'm trying to understand is where do they get the teaching that the church will be raptured out and will not have to go through tribulation? Where is that found at? It's not found. That's the whole point. The, the, the point is it's something that is imposed on the Scripture. The notion is a very new notion in church history. It's a 19th century notion that was popularized by John Nelson Darby. And it comes with the presupposition that God has two distinct people. And therefore, he has two distinct plans for the two distinct people. And he has two distinct phases of the second coming and two distinct destinies. 
This, however, is an imposition on Scripture because the truth of it is God has only always had one chosen people, one covenant community, beautifully connected by the cross and illustrated by a cultivated olive tree. Uh, in, in, in Paul's letter to the Romans. So uh, the point here is that all those who are followers of Jesus Christ are the one chosen people. And this is prior to the cross as well, because all that look forward to Christ prior to the cross are God's covenant chosen people. And the covenant chosen people are made up of people from every tongue and language and nation and people. You're not a son of Abraham uh, because of some genealogical construction. You are a son of Abraham because you believe in the God of Abraham. So according to Hank Hanegraaff, the Jews have been disinherited by God. According to Hank Hanegraaff, there is no chosen people. According to Hank Hanegraaff, God will not keep his promises to Israel. According to Hank Hanegraaff, there is no such thing as the rapture. A few years ago, Mr. Hanegraaff joined the Greek Orthodox Church. That, along with his consistent attacks on the rapture and Bible prophecy, caused many evangelical Christian radio networks to cancel the Bible Answer Man program. Still, Hank Hanegraaff has had over a 35-year radio ministry, and he's written many top-selling books, so the damage has been done. Hank Hanegraaff doesn't believe in Bible prophecy, but ironically, he is fulfilling it. The Bible teaches that one of the signs of the end times will be people who mock Bible prophecy. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. When Hank Hanegraaff mocks the rapture, he is fulfilling Bible prophecy. I wish that more pastors, teachers, and theologians would teach Bible prophecy. Over and over and over again, Jesus told his disciples to use him as their example. In John 13, 15, he washed his disciples' feet. Then he said unto them, I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Let Jesus also be the example in what we teach and what we preach. He taught a great deal about his second coming and the signs surrounding it. We should too. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul wrote, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. My prayer is that more and more Christian congregations the world over would begin to watch and be sober, so that the day does not overtake them as a thief. This is James Collins reminding you that the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit a prophecy. Bill Federer's fascinating book, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present, is available to order today. Is socialism the dream of an ideal society? Is socialism a wonderful utopia or a totalitarian nightmare? Order The Real History of Socialism and find out. Call 1-800-652-1144 and order The Real History of Socialism. That's 1-800-652-1144 or order online 
swrc.com. Wednesday, we'll have a studio full of guests ready to answer the question, will the church go through the tribulation? Make sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.